0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems most often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we welcome Greg Foster, who is currently co-founder and CTO at Graphite. Greg joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Greg Foster, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Yay, thank you. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: (laughs) It's a broad question. Let me reflect a little bit. I've been lucky enough to do a good amount of infrastructure engineering. And, and, you know, I, I learned some of this in school. I learned some of this on the job. I also learned a lot of this, like, through reading books. It's one of, one of one of my most geeky hobbies outside of <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons and a few other things is actually reading books on how do, you, how do you create like clean, maintainable software. One of the things that comes to mind is getting modules and interfaces right. One of my favorite books is, is Clean Architecture by famed author Uncle Bob, which is just a fantastic <laughs> author name. And he he really he really advocates for this, this pattern of thinking about where are the dependencies between the modules of your code, where are they pointing? Like, so who's importing what? What interfaces are they importing across? And if you were to chart this out and you have all these like arrows of modules importing one another, which modules are changing the most? I love this pattern of of, of thinking, especially in, in, in terms of creating maintainable software because it lets you draw out your system or any hypothetical system and think about, okay, what parts of the system are gonna change the most? Can I get my dependency graph right? And if I get this right, I can protect myself from so many maintenance headaches in the future. This, for me, has been really practical, really useful. Uh, my current job and previous jobs, yeah.
0: You know, you, you mentioned reading, you know, mm-hmm. just reading books in general. And I'm actually one of those types of people that I've never read like a programming book front-to-cover Immediately, admittedly, I'm always kind of like, well, I'm going to skim through and look for some little nuggets of inspiration here and there. I, like, I always like pattern books where I can go just like browse patterns and be like, oh, that's, that's curious. How would I use that? And when might I use this? And maybe one day if I ever need something like this, I'll come back and revisit this thing. But have you always been the kind of person that just feels pretty comfortable just jumping in and reading?
1: There's so much good stuff in these books. Because <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, think of, how do we learn as, as software engineers? Like One, we do stuff and we talk to our peers. But you also Google a lot and you read these blog posts. Personally, I've found, not always the case, but a lot of the times that blog posts can actually be very, very mixed in quality. And sometimes you read these books and you, and you can find really well thought through really wise advice that's been tried and tested that's kind of lasted over the years. I'm always impressed. I'm like, oh my gosh, like the, this is like so much better than like all the blog posts I've been looking up around whatever topic. But for me, I mean, you yes, ask like, like why, why do the reading? There's a lot in the world of engineering that I don't know that I don't know. so I, I, have historically tried out this pattern where anytime I hear about a topic or I'm working on a problem that keeps coming up. I remember like one time I was at Airbnb and, and people kept mentioning zookeeper as a service. I'm like, what the heck is zookeeper? So I'm like, okay, let me just get the book on zookeeper and read it. And to this day, I'm not an expert on zookeeper, but now I now I know. Okay, it's, it's vaguely you know for this purpose, and it's kind of backed by you know general consensus algorithms and so on. So it helps me understand just general topics that I didn't even know existed, general general problems, and general solutions to those problems. That's that's why I like them as a wealth of knowledge. Otherwise, I'm just constantly learning only the things I encounter, and that can be quite narrow.
0: Maybe, maybe I'll pick up a couple more books and read. I mean, I've definitely bought a lot of books. Uh, it's I think it's easy. And then eventually it was like, all right, maybe I'm running at a bookshelf and I'm like, I have well intentions for reading these books at some point, but, uh, I'm always a bit more of a,
1: They're also dense. I, I am. It's not just, it's not your fault, Robbie. Uh, it, it, these are thick textbooks sometimes. to read. I, for me, it was like, okay. So I built a habit and I said, I'll wake up in the morning. I'm always sharpest in the morning. Unlike the average engineer is like sharp at night <laughs> and I pour myself a nice cup of coffee and I'll just try and read like, five pages every morning, 500 pages. And that alone, even though it takes me 30 minutes because it's so dense, that alone was actually enough to help me start getting through some of these books. Did you
0: uh, go through a f- more formal education process in the computer science world?
1: I did, yeah. I was lucky enough to study computer science in college, but it was interesting. And I, I do appreciate this, but my—you know the, all the CS I studied in college was very uh, theoretical. You'd take classes on algorithms, but it'd be heavily math, proof-based, math-based. You know, we talk about like lambda calculus, which is very interesting, but not the most practical way to learn about varieties of programming languages. We would talk about operating systems, but we would, we would do it on the level of like virtual memory tables and very low level. Most of what I've come to learn about modern like software architecture, how does one actually compose a maintainable, like long-lived, powerful system? How do you think about the difference between service-oriented architecture versus a monolith versus a monorepo versus all these different trade-offs? That I didn't learn in college. That's definitely come from on the job and from reading books and I'm talking with really smart peers who, who challenged the challenge me constantly. And then I had to, I had to formalize my opinion and try and push back on them. Nice.
0: You know, that, that brings up one of the topics I was going to dig into a little later, but let me just go ahead and bring this in earlier. And you mentioned like monoliths and service SOAs and stuff like that. Um, what is your take on that these days? Do you, when do you think it's appropriate for like an SOA pattern to be implemented in an organization?
1: I don't know. I'm curious how much of the hot take my take is these days versus becoming more of a mainstream take. I don't know. When I, when I, when I, when I, was, I was kind of out of college, I was like a little bit more just experiencing big tech. I watched Airbnb transition from, from a, a monolith, monorail, I think, because it was a monolithic Ruby on Rails app, and they were breaking it out into a thousand plus service oriented uh, services. And I was watching this go on is it was, it, was it was a very painful migration for the company, but there are some gains, you know, you get this nice abstraction, different teams can own individual services, they can practice DevOps on an independent service, and they get to use their standard network-based API as like, this is my interface to the world. If I can, if I can uphold this bargain, you don't care about how I implement the details. And I, I watched all this go on. I'm like, that sounds like a pretty good idea. This seems like a smart practice. And there's a lot of wisdom online saying like SOA is very advanced, you know, you feel very professional doing it. But my, my tech lead at the time, who I who I love really dearly, uh, Brian Wolf, you know, he sat me down. He's like, he's like, why do you think he's like, why why do you think people are doing this? I'm like, oh, I think they're doing it because they they want a way to isolate their code, and they want you know they they want to it's cleaner if I can break out the part that has the users from the part that like serves the listings and so on. And he and he's like, okay, so it sounds like you think this is a good idea for modularization and for clean interfaces, but there are other mechanisms that you could use to, to, to get that. You know, you can create libraries, you can create software modules, you can create public private methods, depending on the language and you know, so on. There's a whole there's a whole spectrum of, of ways to create modular software. Uh, creating services is just one way to do it. And it and it, you pointed out to me, it comes with a really high cost, which is uh, you now need service discovery, you now need network hops, uh, which, which obviously add latency to a system. You you have to worry about things about like 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 cascading failures across like a web of these things. Suddenly like canary deployments and, and certain things become very challenging. Feature flags, et cetera. Like makes a lot of things very hard for this for this one gain. And there was also some other smart people at Airbnb who were very pro Java, and I thought I thought it was very smart. And they they also pointed out to me they're like you know Java has been building massive systems for a long time, uh, and they never had like for, you know like years ago service oriented architecture was not a big deal. So they built very advanced systems of like public-private interfaces, modules, they, all to say, you know, there, there, are, there are other ways to do this. No, SOA is good. There are some advantages, you know. Maybe I really want to be able to scale certain parts of my system up or down independently of other parts. Maybe I really want to decouple that on like a truly network-based level, level or hardware-based level, but I frequently see it abused and implemented too early. I've talked to peer startups over the years and they're like, yeah, we're a team of five people, 10 people, and we have 30 services. I'm like, why, why are you doing that to yourself? Why are, you, why are you setting up a Kubernetes cluster? And I assume just creating a total headache of DevOps. Like, why do you have? Why are you even worrying about service discovery <laughs> at this scale? People would jump to it a little bit early. Uh, I think that's the, that's the mistake. So long story short, I think it's to be avoided until you absolutely need it. And if you don't feel like you absolutely need it, it's probably not worth building.
0: My company works in the Ruby on Rails space and so we work on existing apps and we'll, we inherit projects where there'll be 20, 40 repos and we're like, whoa, okay, what are we doing? And like, how big is your team? They're like three people. <laughs> you're like, okay, uh, this is interesting. And then how many different, when there's a security patch across different things or how many different gems files you're having to update? I'm like, how many PRs are, like, are you having to deal with across how many different repos Again, how many? So yeah, we we do we do a Ruby on Rails survey every couple of years, and we can see that monoliths are trending back, and there's some hybrids in there. But um, another thing you you know you you mentioned as well, or or at least we in prior to our conversation, you mentioned like repo our mono repos is another approach. And um, I had a couple of my past guests have mentioned this in the past. One in particular like works in New Relic, and they said that was a, a direction that they were trying to move into to like okay. Let's have a atomic, atomic commits, and not like have to like. I think the dream of us having all these different things get deployed independently whenever just doesn't always necessarily pan out with a lot of headaches. When do you think those types of things are are, are more beneficial for teams to consider versus? Where's that trade off? When when is it too soon or not?
1: Well, I, you know, you think about the name of this podcast, maintainable. It, to me, like the big question is, what what systems are going to allow you to maintain and keep evolving software uh, as quickly and easily as possible into the future? I think it's like the, like one of the primary things to optimize for, because otherwise, outside of this, you know, how much do we actually care about these different choices? What I care about is that I'm building a product that's helping real people, but. when when i'm is is it a monorepo or is it multi-repo or is it a monolith that to me is like okay what's gonna what's gonna allow me just to maintain evolve and keep this thing running long into the future so every one of these abstractions or interfaces however you want to frame it has some benefit and comes with some level of like upkeep and cost and often devops around it starting with you know as we were just talking about with soa versus monolith If I break it out, I now have to run DevOps and deployments and rollbacks and uptime monitoring across many systems instead of one system. Same thing if I break out repos. I before could have a set of maintenance scripts that maybe deploy my monolithic repo. Now I have to spread those out and I have to create tooling that can deploy many repos. Maybe I had one set of continuous integration tests that were running across one trunk. Now I have to have many continuous integration systems. I really fan out this this upkeep problem and it's software, so you know you can always try and write meta-systems upon meta-systems that keep track of this. But it begs the question, like, why break it out in the first place? Like, If you could get away with one repo, that sounds a bit simpler. And simple systems tend to be the most maintainable in the long run. I, mean, this, I don't want to speak too far out of my expertise, but I think some people break out Git repos for a variety of reasons. If you're a mega company, you might actually be hitting scaling limits on Git itself. I saw some pains at Airbnb where they had a, a, a monorepo for all of their Java apps and checking that out and installing that actually became slow enough that it would start just bricking IntelliJ, but they started developing tooling around partial checkouts. So they got that kind of a little bit more performant. I also see some people develop a lot of pains around having a single trunk branch, and if you have a thousand or five thousand engineers all developing and merging onto a single trunk branch, suddenly you're actually getting rebase conflicts post merge. And you, you kind of now maybe you need a merge queue and you're deploying, but there's enough people who are actually reverting or creating bugs uh, that it's halting the deploy train. And it's now getting a little slower. So people are like, okay, maybe if I break out into separate repos and with my own deployment system, maybe I can avoid just, just other silly people in my company slowing me down. And they start leaning for these benefits. That's where it's at that massive scale, I think you can start having a reasonable conversation about the pros and cons. If you're at any smaller scale and you're not facing those kind of problems, I really think you should push for a monorepo. I don't think there are huge benefits to breaking it out. The one exception is perhaps open source. So perhaps you have closed source and open source bits of your code base and you want to, you want to keep those separate. I mean, that's very logical, but that makes sense. Yeah. You should lean towards, it. and there's some good tooling these days to help you with monorepos. I was just investigating, you know, I, I work in TypeScript right now and you have, have uh you've you have turbo to help help create a, a DAG of your builds and 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 build across all the, the all the parts of your system, all the different libraries and apps within your monorepo that actually need an update. I know there's some open source versions from Google as well that help help you with this tooling, but there's a lot of good stuff out there, even at the biggest scales. Can it be done? Can you maintain this? Yeah, I think I think Facebook and Google. I think Google historically has always stuck to Monorepo. I think Facebook has oscillated a little bit, but it's leaned towards Monorepo. If they can do it, everyone else can do it. It's kind of my mentality. Um, I don't know. I, I, I tended to have a bad time with with individual repos. Lastly, you know, the perks of atomic commits are so strong. You know, if I need to bump a, a package across 20 different projects and libraries, so much easier, easier an atomic commit versus uh, perhaps like a three-step commit across like a ton of different repos. Right. And then
0: trying to coordinate all that stuff is can be a challenge too. I'm always curious about teams, especially when it comes to like onboarding for new engineers, like how what's the complexity level for getting everything pulled up or how much do you can you automate to pull in just the services you're gonna to need to interact with and versus like go clone this one repository and then start, you know, getting getting going and stuff like that versus like here's twenty things you need to figure
1: out individually there's okay. some, there's some good wisdom i think i think i mean i you know i, mean, I read my books I, I i think i was reading one of the uncle bob books uh it's either that or philosophy of software design which is a fantastic book as well by a stanford professor but they advocate this wisdom like your system should be able to be installed with one command and deploy from one command and if it's any more steps than that you should you should reflect on 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 why and can you simplify it but exactly for that purpose both for you to keep your own sanity but also as you're bringing on new people onto the system keep it streamlined, keep it simple. If it's more steps than that, why are you not codifying it?
0: Right. So I was having a conversation with some people yesterday about like onboarding junior developers to teams in particular and... I was talking with like a project, product manager and like, well, like trying to help them get, how quickly can you get a junior developer or anyone on your team uh, when they onboard to actually be able to commit something and get it pushed out to production and know that that process, like to understand what that workflow looks like, even if it means going working with other people or if they can play like literally to deploy it themselves and how quickly can you roll that back? Like you feel comfortable, like if you push something out and then you can undo that, like, you got to build that confidence up for everybody in your team pretty early, I think. And I feel like it's a missed opportunity sometimes. It's like, here's the keys. Take it for a spin around the block and just park it when you're done. And how scary that is for your organization, I feel like says a lot about how maintainable or approachable your platform is. And so... Means
1: you don't you don't trust your unit tests, and you don't you don't trust that a rollback can be fast and, and and seamless, and you don't trust that you might have a staging environment or you might have canary analysis. If you're afraid of all that, your system is quite brittle. That's okay though. I also don't want to shame people too much. I also understand that you know within the world of infrastructure and fast moving products and business demands, sometimes you know the best practice, and you wish you could be sophisticated, you could have all this nice stuff. But realistically, you haven't had time to build it and the business hasn't yet prioritized it. And maybe you're fighting for this internally. But I, I think sometimes people are like a little bit ashamed. They're like, oh, my code base is, is so bad. Like, I know we could be better. Like, that's okay. That's really, you gotta be realistic as well.
0: That's, that's, that's fair. I mean, think about the that three-person team that I mentioned earlier. They also, you know, maybe hope that they're going to bring in more people at some point. And then, but a lot of these patterns sometimes, I think what ends up happening is that people are like curious about this stuff. They're really, blog posts about it or, you know, books about these different approaches that some large companies like, oh, Airbnb does X, we should do X, you know, and it's like, well, we don't have the same access to the same sort of, uh, a lot of things. (laughs) So like, it's not just financially, just, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we don't have access to, um, in the hopes that you're one day going to be just as big or something as Netflix or Airbnb or who have time to have people that can write big, lengthy articles about how they're approaching this. As, and sometimes I wonder, like, that's actually a really effective recruitment strategy is to share, you know, so it's, uh, anyways, just for those listening, don't, don't feel bad about it.
1: You look at these shiny new technologies, I, I really, I personally lean on, on, on a couple of principles. One is, if I'm trying to write maintainable systems, and, and, and again, if my true goal is to help ship a product that helps people, I really want to maximize uh, simplicity. I want to minimize complexity. That's like at the heart of this. So if I'm looking at making an architecture decision, if I'm looking at adopting technology, switching to a monorepo, changing my build tooling, whatever it may be, what's going to get me the simplest system moving forward? That's number one. And if the if, if change is actually might give me more uptime, it's going to be more complicated. I'm actually going to be quite like negative about it. Number two, really, I try and lean on, on, on things that have been... Around for a long time, whether the idea has been around for a long time, or even the system that you're actually building on has been around for, for quite a while. There's a, I think there's a, there's a famous idea of like the Lindy effect, which is that the mm. things that things and ideas and, and implementations that have been around for quite a while are most likely to continue being around for a long time. So what's what's, what's more likely to be around for the next 10 years? Is it Rails, which has been around for 10 years, or is it the the new service that exists that came out in the last month? It's probably going to be Rails, if I had to guess. Now, it could be the new system, but probabilistically it'll be the thing that's been around for a little bit longer. So if I want to pick something, I want to build a maintainable architecture, I'm going to bias towards older patterns, things with more wisdom around them that have been tried and tested. I won't completely reject new stuff, but I will be skeptical of it. And if I'm going to implement it, uh, I, I, I'm going to be mistrustful and I'm going to wrap it in my own interface that I control and I'm going to put it in a corner <laughs> and I'm going to decouple my business logic because I never want to have to change my business logic because some new package or technology I adopted is shifting underneath me.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Greg in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Greg Foster. You know, like, I want to talk a little bit about you know, your team's product, Graphite. So I hadn't heard of it before, you know, we started talking recently and um, sort of looking around at it. I haven't got actually got a chance to play with it yet, but I was curious, like, maybe I could just give you like a high level overview of like what Graphite does and what problems you're, it's helping solve. And does this make sense for larger organizations, smaller organizations?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I was just saying, you know, you think about these, these ideas that have been around for a long time tend to be quite good ideas. They've stood the test of time. Graphite at the heart of it, I think is an idea that's been around for a long time. The idea, perhaps at the deepest point of the heart of it is that software engineering is done best when you have frequent small changes. That's like the, that's like the best way to do software engineering. It's the opposite of waterfall. I think a lot of people are on board with this idea. You wanna, you wanna make lots of small changes, each one independently passing CI, getting reviewed, frequently merging in, you got a nice continuous delivery system that's constantly rolling these out. The antithesis of this, uh, at the extreme end would be waterfall where I just sit there and I write like hypothetically a pull request or before there were, were even pull requests, just software, uh, a new release version for a year. And then I QA it for a month. And then I put like, I print it onto a disc and I ship it to people. That's like, that would be the, the largest change ship, the slowest. And you can get a little bit better. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, you're in waterfall development and you get a little bit better maybe you're just writing, okay, I'm running a thousand line pull request for two or three days and I'm getting my team to review it, and then I'm shipping it at the end of the week. And that's that's a little bit better. We actually see that even today. That's a pretty common thing. But the best case, you look at you look at like papers out of Google who have, who have done some research on this. The best case is that you're you're writing like 50 line pull requests. They're getting reviewed in like an hour, partly because they're so small, so it's such an easy thing for your peers to review, and you're just shipping it right away. If you're on a fast moving internal team, does this make as much sense for open source? I think the patterns are a little bit different, but definitely if you're within a company you want a ton of these small changes constantly, constantly shipping. It's really funny. The research on this is that the smaller the change, the faster it gets reviewed. That's intuitive, but also the, the more detailed it gets reviewed, which I think is fascinating. People are, your peers are more likely to leave thoughtful comments. Uh, and actually, gonna find real bugs in your change. If it's small, if it's big, people just start skimming it. And at some point they just give up and they say, LGTM, stamp it, <laughs> send it. You know, shoot out the door and watch you take down the website. And and God, you know, debugging a thousand line change sucks uh, compared to debugging a fifty line change because yeah. <laughs> you don't know where in that you actually you actually broke things. So that's at the heart. This is like this idea I think everyone could get behind. So what does Graphite do? Graphite allows you to make tons of these small changes but not get blocked. Because there's a reason. There's a reason today. People actually create these 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 large pull requests. It's not. It's not that you know they're they're stupid or they're malicious. It's that if I'm building a feature, and I put up a small pull request. And my teammates out to lunch. You know, I I either go I work on something else or I just start bloating this pull request or just start stacking onto it. If I if I want to keep changing things dependent on these downstream changes, in pure Git, I would just stack commits on that. But the the unit of code change in the modern world is pretty much a pull request. It's the smallest thing that can be reviewed and deployed pretty much. And I don't have a good mechanism of creating pull requests on top of pull requests, you know, a branch on top of a branch, creating a stack mm. of these things. So most developers at some point or another have tried to branch off their feature branch. You've probably done this locally. You probably like you have your feature branch checked out, you create a branch on top of that. And maybe it goes pretty well, or maybe in your first pull request, someone asks you to change something and you change it, but now you're, upstream pull requests is screwed up. And now you maybe have to do a three-point rebase, but like who knows how to by hand do like a three-point rebase with like the commit hashes manually typed in. And that's just too. If you had like five of these things, you'd just be in a car crash. It would, be, it would be impossible. So that's kind of why I don't think we do this today. It's just It's just too painful to do it manually. But does the idea hold water? If you look at how Facebook and a little bit of Google, but honestly, I think Facebook with fabricator Pioneered a path forward here. They 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 didn't actually use uh, vanilla Git. They didn't use GitHub. They said, let's build Fabricator internally. Let's build some layers on top of Material. Create our own CLI tools. They built out this workflow. They they call it stack diffs. So, you know, you you create your code change. It's a diff, a difference. You 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 slice it off, and then you keep extending it. And then you diff off of that, and you keep extending. It, you diff off of that, and you get this stack going. And you're syncing the stack to remote. Your peers are re- re- reviewing each of these changes independently. You can merge them in all at once once they're approved. You can merge them in one at a time, like, like a zipper cars on a highway. You know, doesn't matter, but you're never blocked. You can keep stacking on top of all these changes that, that, that you've created asynchronously from the peers reviewing. And once you can do that, you can make these a lot smaller, and you can be continuously putting them up for review. It, it, it's the closest I can think of to continuous code changes. We think about like continuous integration testing. We think about continuous delivery. But we haven't really had a system of continuous code changes. And I think Facebook and some other smart people kind of built this out with Fabricator. It spread. They open source it in 2012. You know, it got picked up. Uh, Uber, Twitter, some large companies decided to host Fabricator internally. It was an old app. It was like, it was PHP. It was, you know, LAMP-based stack. Uh, not everyone's taste, but these companies would pick it up and they would extend it. So this pattern of software engineering is fantastic. Now, unfortunately, Fabricator has been end of life. You know, the, 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 the team who is very kindly maintaining it uh, has decided to move on to other things. There's a gap for this sort of development. And to be honest, Fabricator never went that mainstream. I think people were anchored to get GitHub captured the market share. It's quite a nice, nice experience for certain, certain applications. What did we do at Graphite? We said, okay, we, we believe that you can do code review and code changes better. We've seen it done better. We know how it could be done better. Let's build it and let's build it on top of GitHub so that you can start using this. You can start stacking code changes, creating tons of small atomic changes, your peers don't have to be bothered. They don't have to move to fabricator different tooling. They can still see perfectly synced a pull request and you can sit there stacking and try and sell. Honestly, we, we built it out. We built a command, an open source command line tool. We built a web dashboard to help you manage and merge in these stacks of code changes. And it's worked quite well, to be honest, people, it's actually really grown a ton. It's a, it's a, a thousand plus different companies and organizations. Sure. Some sometimes some places it's an individual engineer. Sometimes it was a person who left Facebook. Sometimes it's a person who read about this workflow online thinks that this is actually a better way to write software. And at some companies it's spread and there's hundreds of people using it.
0: I'm curious if you, maybe for those listening that might be trying to like visualize or mental image of like what what do you mean by this? So let's say like take me down a path. Let's say we have a we have a basic application and we're going to work on a new feature for this application. How would this kind of play in? Is this as much as like, okay, I built out the new UI for it and that's like a thing or is it even more like I added a text field to a form that's now an atomic or into smaller
1: thing. How small are we talking? Yeah, let's say, we're, let's say we're jumping into a server and you need to add a new... Login button. I don't know. It could be anything. And you jump in. So you go to the, you go to the login page and you, st- you start looking at the code. You're kind of paging it into your memory because what are we but what are we machines as well? And you're, and you're going along. You're like, okay, wait, first off, okay, let me, this, this code is like two years old and messy. So let me just kind of like reorder these functions. Let me refactor this slightly. I'm not going to do a huge thing, but clean it up a little bit. Boom. Clean it up. There's a branch. There's a feature change. I would love reviewers to take a look at that and, and know that I wasn't changing functionality. I was just cleaning up this code. So I'll slice that off. But it's gonna take them half a day to review that. Maybe my, you know, my teammates are slow, so let me keep coding. So I've, I've done one branch. Now I go in, I'm like, okay, uh, what do I need here? I need a I need a new API endpoint, and I need a new helper function that's gonna kind of power the API point endpoint and maybe a unit test. So, okay, cool. Let me write that helper function. Let me stack on that unit test. Boom, that's an independently reviewable piece of code that can be merged, that can be deployed. It's not gonna do anything bad. Now I can build that endpoint, stack that on top, leverage that helper function I just created, uh, now I switch over and maybe I'm in a monorepo. So I switch over to the client side and I want to leverage this new endpoint I've just created. Now, in between all that, maybe now I actually get code review back from the first change. <laughs> maybe I'm like five hours into coding this and I get, I get code review back. And they're like, hey, love love the first refactor, uh, just a couple of nits, you know, just, just fix up these minor details. And I can pause, I can go and make those changes and in one command on Graphite, it can automatically recursively rebase everything I, I make my change, it applies it up, up the stack, all one command, and syncs it back to all the open pull requests. So just completely seamless, no work on my end. And I can keep coding, and now on the client, I can go implement the UI, I can implement the site that calls that endpoint. But each of these individual components, wouldn't it be lovely if those were just diff- their own little pull request, so that if, if someone actually wants to review it, it's very manageable. If there's a bug in one of them, it's very small scoped. It's down to just a bit the smallest change possible instead of being in this big you know tree of things. And if I need to roll something back, I'm rolling back a very small change. I'm not rolling back uh, a, a monolithic change that I worked all week on. That's an example of how you might create a very simple stack flow. It can get more complicated. I could work with other people, I could I could cooperatively stack stuff, you know, you can, you can take it anywhere. But that would be like a straightforward one.
0: And when you mentioned that it like resyncs the PRs, is that? Other PRs that people are working on that are kind of independent, or is that primarily just the other PRs related to what you've been kind of your
1: tree of commits there? Primarily just your stack, because because what's going on if I go and I fix up the first branch in that stack, I'm doing one of two things: I'm either stacking on a commit, or I'm I, I'm actually editing that original commit. In both cases, even if you do a rebase and get, in both cases, you're you're going to create a new commit. So all the other branches on top of that and their commits actually need to be shifted because you know, Git and, and the commits are all a tree. They need to be shifted to be referencing this new commit as a challenging operation to run by hand. And then it's even more challenging to push those branches back to GitHub, but make sure you're just pushing the right sections of that, of that tree. So what is Graphite doing under the hood? Well, the CLI, honestly, it's mostly just keeping track of the the parent-child relationships between these branches. It's still all vanilla Git under the hood. We're just adding a layer of metadata that's keeping track of of the relationships and and able to make the correct rebases and push and pulls and things. Interesting.
0: Do you does that require? I'm just thinking about like one of the things that's nice. One of the things that I really liked about Git originally was like, oh, I can create local branches, right, as like a thing, and I can, and independent of whether or not I have internet access, I could deal with things. So does there a dependency on with Graphi to have an internet connection to be able to sync some data into your systems, or is that all happening primarily locally?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, I think I think when we 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 think about these exact architecture choices as we're building this out. And the nice part is we are engineers ourselves and we're empathetic to all these same concerns. We think about, we have the same concerns. So we do what's best. We say, okay, Hey, like, Let's, of course, let's not block on, on server access if want or create a new branch. You know, the only time I should be hitting the server is I'm actually doing a network operation, like pushing or, or, or something. Uh, also, like, let's not encode all this metadata in, you know, arcane graphite specific stuff. Let's actually store it in Git refs. Git refs are quite flexible. They're, they're arbitrary pointers, to arbitrary data. Let's just store some JSON data. All we need to do is map the names of these branches. So let's store it all in Git so that if you push your refs to a universal Git remote, you're also keeping track of your metadata. Nice. We don't want to lock you in. The only times we hit our server are, are things we think that you really need to, which is like <laughs> performing a complex a network-based operation.
0: Nice. And where can people go learn more about Graphite online?
1: Yeah, just graphite.dev. Check it out. I think it's people are talking about it on Twitter. There's a lovely Slack community of, I think, over 4,000 engineers uh, who are invested, involved, talking about it, submitting us feature requests and and uh, bug reports all the time, which is I, I actually think wonderful. It means that they actually care. And if you, Yeah, honestly, if you're listening to this and you have both opinions on how uh, Git and branches should work, but also opinions on how code review could be better and you wish that it was better, come get involved, try it out, join the Slack channel and give us that feedback because we are actively building and molding this by the day and we're trying to make the best possible code change flow that there could be. That's awesome.
0: Well, yeah, definitely include links to that for everybody in the show notes and stuff as well. A couple other quick things I was kind of curious to dig into with you. Um, is it safe to assume that your team has its own? Do you have technical debt and like how do you go? And if so, how do you as your team go about organizing and, and that type of work and prioritizing that work amongst you know shipping on new features as a you know in, in the startup land.
1: Yeah, I mean, Robbie I think this is this is why maintainable is a podcast that can go on forever. Is because the, the the question you're asking, the heart of that question, I think, is a is a paradox that will never be solved. Graphite. It's a wonderful team full of the smartest programmers I've been lucky enough to work with, but we're also a startup, and we've had to move very quickly, and we've had to build product out rapidly without being able to. Always invest in building it the most perfect way first, because sometimes you got to know, you got to get that feedback, you got to ship something, you got to actually see people like it before you sit around hardening it and, and making it really solid. So of course, we of course we have some level of uh, technical debt, but it's a question of how we prioritize that because we're also a startup and we also got to keep growing, we got to keep offering value. Otherwise, we'll run out, of, run, out of, run out of run out of steam. You know, in practical terms, how do we actually split that out? I, I would say we spend about a third of our time stabilizing, improving making more maintainable the existing systems. And we spend about two thirds of our time building out new surface area. That's a, that's a, that's a back of the envelope kind of balance. And I think it changes over time. You know, it's not always consistent. Sometimes you go through cycles here, but at the heart of it. And I was, I was reflecting on this. I think this is just a universal tension. You can't have one without the other. You can't sit around just constantly like improving the, the, the architecture, the dependency graph and, and, and the deployment systems without ever actually building a product because like, who's funding you to do this? Like right. what value are you actually offering? But if you just build product and you're like, I don't believe in tests, I don't believe in deployments, I don't believe in <laughs> any maintainable systems whatsoever, you're gonna like, you're gonna tangle yourself in a rat's nest and just fall over. So there's some push and pull. Finding the true heart of that balance for me is, is, is a journey. I don't know if I've ever like fully found the right balance. I, I always go one way and then I kind of swing back the other way. Sometimes I think that's just kind of, kind of the way it's meant to be.
0: Hi there do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their ruby on rails application planet argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus send someone our way and if they sign up for services with planet argon we'll give them a $1,000 discount and in return you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail just for knowing the right person Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Are there any data metrics that you find valuable for your team to kind of track to get get a, a sense of like how healthy your software delivery cycle look is?
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we care a lot about, I mean, you hear, you hear about what we're building. We care, we care about shipping many small changes. So we want, we monitor that. We say, Hey, if our system is actually low complexity and it's well-maintainable, our engineers and our team should be unblocked to ship many small changes, you know? So one of the, one of the cool things we honestly just hacked into graphite because mm-hmm. GitHub has never done a good job of showing kind of insights is we give you, we, we, we present graphs of, how quickly is your team landing changes? What, how long does it take to land those changes? For sure, How long are they up for review? Uh, how big are those changes? Are, they, are you keeping them small? We monitor that, and that, that, that gives us kind of an output-based pulse on like, okay, are people continuously shipping stuff? There's some other classical metrics. You know, you get, you get your code coverage metrics to see like, what level am I actually testing stuff? That's interesting. I, haven't, I personally haven't found it to be the most useful, but it, it does help incentivize people to, to, to prioritize unit testing. As far as other qual- like, like quality metrics, I I think about cyclomatic complexity. There's actually some cool VS VS code extensions that will show you for any function, any file, what the cyclomatic complexity is, little colors. So you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is is way too complicated. I try and keep that down. I try and just be a good citizen in the code base and, and, and keep very narrow interfaces and very deep modules. I think that's a wise pattern to try and practice. You could build a metric around this. We haven't gone so far as to build a metric on that. If a team only got one, though, honestly, I would advocate look at the pace that that, that, that people are actually landing changes. If you assume Hmm. that the input, the time your engineers are spending and the effort spending is relatively constant, then you should get a relatively constant rate of landing these changes, hopefully actually increasing. But you see these systems as they grow people start slowing down how quickly they're able to make changes, how quickly it takes for features to actually land. And that to me is the greatest sign that you're actually, you're, you're in a rat's nest. You've, it's way harder to add a feature now than it was a year ago. Something's going wrong in the maintainability of your system.
0: Have you been in an environment where that's, you've seen that been able to be
1: uh, averted? successfully, successfully avoided. Well, this gets back. I mean, I think this gets back at the classic tension of, you know, how much do you upfront creating like the, the really clean maintainable patterns versus do you just build stuff out, create some value, realize where, you know, where, where the correct abstractions would actually lie and then kind of clean it up after. And it's a, it's a balance. So yes, sometimes I have, gone. I've run ahead. I've just built out stuff. I haven't had the time to, to get the abstractions dead right. And even if I had tried to, maybe I would have got them wrong. One thing I think about, maybe people can empathize with this, is large-scale React code bases. I sometimes have found myself creating just sprawls of components with lots of tunneling of props and variables through, like, multiple levels of, like, of nested components. Um, I always look at those kinds of systems. I am, like, these get here very naturally, just, just one person stacking on one component on top of okay. another, but I'm like, oh, this is such a rat's nest. And then I go to add a new feature and I have to tunnel down a property, like seven layers. Maybe I put it in a React context, but at that point I'm just using a global and I've broken all, <laughs> I've, I've broken some other sins of, of, of coding. You know, that, 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 that's an example where I, where I look, I'm like, mm, we could do this better. We've created a little debt here. I can appreciate that. So a couple of quick last questions
0: with, with you before we, we wrap this up, you know, let's imagine that there's a few, few people that's sitting right now and they've been at their company for a few years and they feel like they've asked about, like, maybe spending some more time to, to deal with, like, okay, hey, we, we need to take care of some of this technical debt, or we need to improve some, like, the long-term maintainability, but the product managers, ha- they've heard the product managers or owners say, not right now, maybe later, things maybe a few times, and so they've stopped asking. <laughs> Um, what sort of advice outside of like maybe looking for a new job, could you offer them on how to start like course correcting things today rather than keep waiting for the
1: like permission to come their way? Totally. Two, two things come to mind. There's, there's, uh, there's kind of, how do you, how do you pitch and sell this internally in in your company to people who may not care? And then number two, how do you just get it done? So first one, how do you, how do you sell and make attractive, clean, maintainable patterns? especially to people who maybe aren't even coding with you. I think you got to sell it on the fact that, that this is how you, because you go to your PM, you go to your manager, you go to your teammates, you're like what, what, what do we all care about? We care about moving as quickly as possible and shipping real product. Like that's the business bottom line. I know how we can do that. We can do that by writing maintainable software. Every feature is not one cost. It is not the cost it takes me in this sprint to build it out. It's the cost it takes me to build it out in this sprint and some level of maintenance indefinitely into the future. And that is a fixed cost. And eventually that will get so high that I will not have time and you will not have time to keep adding on new features that you want. If we want to move fast, we got to strike a balance with this maintenance. I think so you really sell it on the speed um, and, I th- and hopefully your organization can empathize with that. Practically speaking, I've never actually had much success with saying like, hey, can we spend a week on our team just to clean up, just to refactor, just to get down our back- bug backlog? Uh, you know, I know we just spent like two months or two two cycles are building building new features. Can we just pause and build? I've never had good luck with that. I don't actually don't think it works very well because uh, you know, one, you have to you have to ask people to slow down, and people hate that. And, and and also, I think it's harder sometimes to to do this stuff retroactively. It's harder to like look at a big mess you made and like sit down and try and try and clean it up. This stuff is best cleaned up either when you writing it correctly the first time. Or every time you go into an area of the code base and you're adding a new feature, I think it's actually best to just spend an extra 10 or 20% of your time, not too much, but just a little bit of your time and leave the world in a better place. Maybe you reordered the functions, you cleaned it up, you c- killed some dead code, you slimmed down an interface, you added some more tests that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. I think that pattern is actually much more sustainable because you never need to really get the buy-in of the mm-hmm. people around you. If it really is making you faster, and I think people need to believe this makes you faster, that 10% extra time will pay off over the year of engineering you're doing in that area of the code base. Uh, so people will still, still think you're moving really quickly. And it's easiest because when you're there, you're already it's already page into your context. So clean it up now, clean it up when you're in the moment. Uh, don't go overboard. But I think if you're just constantly doing about 10 or 20% cleanup, and if everyone's being despaired in doing this, you will end up with a nice clean code base.
0: And that maybe speaks back to, you know, what Graphite does is if you can do that a little bit of that cleanup and have that be separate from like the work that you're going to then do on top of that that is interesting sometimes we'll you know i'll be looking at a pr for, for one of our developers and i'll be like i'm like oh what's all this stuff you're changing here and like oh it was just some tough i was tidying up while i was here and i'm like oh this is cool but nobody else has this until until we get this merged the rest of this thing merged in so that that speaking to your other point um otherwise there's always that like well why did you send over this pr for something we didn't ask you to work on right now
1: worry that i think people might have the only, the only code that matters is the code that actually merges in. <laughs> if it doesn't yeah. merge in, it doesn't matter. So at least if you're allowed to merge in half your code while people yeah. nitpick the other half, hey, at
0: least you got, you got something done. That's true. So is there a non-software, non-technical book that you've read that you find yourself recommending to other people to read on a regular basis?
1: Ooh, a non-technical book that I recommend to people to read on, on, on a regular basis. Well, yeah, of course. I think if you're not, I'm not, I'm not the expert on this, but but gosh, if you're, if you're not reading through some part of your day, I think you're missing out. You're not, you're just not too to grow. It's one of the best ways to grow. One book we found so helpful at Graphite in the journey of doing a startup is is a book called the mom test. I, I wholeheartedly endorse this book. I've read this like three times. It has fantastic wisdom on how to get feedback for systems and things and products and projects that you work on, which as software engineers, I think we tend to do a really bad job of <laughs> you work on something cool. You get really excited about it. You tell your friend, your friend likes you. So they're like, yeah, it's a good idea. But like, how do you see through that and how do you actually mm. get like authentic feedback, know what you're building is actually valuable or meaningful. And, and it doesn't have to be software engineering. You know, you, you can have any, any projects or any efforts in your life, but how do you, how do you talk about that mm. and, and, and share that and get authentic, meaningful like feedback mom test would recommend. So it's a short book. It's like a hundred pages long. If you're doing a startup, it is incredibly (laughs) useful because there's nothing easier than lying to yourself and thinking that people like your idea. (laughs) Would recommend. Excellent. I'll
0: definitely include a link to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online?
1: Oh my gosh. I am historically not (laughs) the, the world's best at creating a social media presence and publishing my thoughts on software engineering online. That being said, I'm trying to get a little more into it so far as I'm creating tooling to help other people. Might as well share some of those ideas. Twitter is a good place to find me, Uh, Greg M. Foster. Otherwise, just check out Graphite. and, 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 you know, I work on this thing day and night. So anything related to Graphite, if you join the community Slack, you'll see me in there and you can send me messages and say hello. I'm pretty active.
0: Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Greg. Thanks for talking shop.
1: Robbie, thanks for having me. This is a blast. I can do this all day.